0: There is a humorlessness at the heart of politics. These are the words of Lauren Berlant. She's the George M. Pullman Distinguished Service Professor of English at the University of Chicago.
1: An inevitable feature of the political is that there is a place where the enjoyment of one's own political position and the affect of humorlessness are completely indistinguishable.
0: She's a specialist in questions of intimacy and sentimentality in popular culture and media in the 19th through 21st centuries.
1: Anyway, uh, these days I'm trying to describe aspects that we all experience.
0: In March of 2017, Berlant was invited by the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows at Columbia University to host a talk as part of their Lionel Trilling seminar series, an annual intellectual conversation named in honor of the celebrated humanities scholar and Columbia faculty member. This year, Berlant's talk, titled humorlessness slash politics, had an extremely urgent purpose.
1: You may feel, I think, that on every page of this talk, the word Trump appears as a watermark. Uh, I've been writing about the victory of his humorless, sarcastic sovereignty style since 2012, because even then I saw the ascendance of his illiberal fear of vulnerability and disgust at losers in right-wing cultural and policy agendas and tones. This uh, humorlessness project comes at humorless time, and and part of me uh, that wants to stop everything now for an extended general strike doesn't much want to be giving papers these days. Um, Because, as my friend uh, Greg Bordewitz says, politics is kind of, it makes you feel ridiculous. Like, why am I doing anything? Like, why do we do things? And part of of the way I think about it um, is that you have to take the risk of being ridiculous because it's not what you do, but it's what everybody does that creates the possibility of counter noise.
0: In her talk, Berlant addresses humorlessness as ontology, performance, and affect, asking how humorlessness structures the political scene today. Which is, we learn, no laughing matter. I'm your host, Olivia Ritigliano. You're listening to The Trilling Tapes, presented by the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows at Columbia University. Chapter one, funny games.
1: We've now shifted to a world that valorizes sentimentality toward the vulnerability of winners and takes pride in aversion to losers. We sense it everywhere in election season, in political speeches and on social media, with their amplification of tendencies into facts, passions into fiery phrases, and inclinations into rigid assertions. We sense humorlessness in the cyber-aggression of the troll, in our enemies' and friends' political opinions in right and left-wing rigidity, in bureaucratic rule enforcement, and sometimes in our own very statements and tones. But humorlessness in the political field does not always look like an erasure of warmth. Think about the indeterminate relation between laughing with and laughing at.
2: The example that she uses at the beginning of her essay on humorlessness is Christian Bale doing a comb-over At the beginning of uh david russell's 2013 movie american hustle which from a certain point of view is hysterically funny but it's also humorless in a way because as she says aren't we all kind of comb over subjects aren't we all kind of in the situation of someone so desperately trying to cover up our our insufficiencies in the way that uh Christian Bale really brilliantly performs it at the beginning of that film.
0: This is Bruce Robbins, the Old Dominion Foundation Professor of the Humanities in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, and author of six books and innumerable essays. We're thrilled to have him to reflect a bit on Berlant's task.
1: And consider the rise of global political struggles over satire or weaponized comedy it's not that humorlessness appears only when people seem humorless, seem secure in opinion, or are uninterested in learning one more thing about the world or each other. That is, when they're insisting on a fact of things. Rigidity is just one way humorlessness appears, as a seriousness that seems rock hard all the way through.
0: Berlant acknowledges the long relationship between politics and humor. Discussing humor as a tool for political resistance... And revealing its long linkages to sensations of joy and freedom as explored in works by Dorothy Parker or Barbara Ehrenreich.
1: At the same time the bitter mirth of any radical politics right or left folds the comedic into the bully's pleasure. This is what Al Franken means when he refers to and I quote the comedian Rush Limbaugh. It's what Milo Yiannopoulos and Alum Bukhari describe in their essay, An Establishment Conservative's Guide to the Alt-Right, where ridicule of left-wing humorlessness is seen both as fun and as the exploitation of a weakness in the system. To them, politics is downwind from culture rather than the other way around. The conflation of the humorless and the comedic will, to them,
0: diminish the power of an ideology that has been What Berlant is saying is no joke, but she does pause for a minute to
1: tell one. How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? You know that joke? How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? That's not funny. That's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Feminists find this joke about the unfunny funny because it recognizes that we are exhausted from being the butts of misogynist pleasure. And, in response, the pleasure police, who, as Sarah Ahmed and so offered, are then cast as the killjoys who can't take a joke. And the whole idea of taking a joke tells you something about its weaponization, right? People who find feminism aversive find the joke funny, because it feels true about feminists, that we have withdrawn from whatever spaces of second chances, generosity, exploratory pleasure, and protection of the other's feelings that makes it possible to improvise unreservedly in the social. So, what is the function of humorlessness in political life? Is it an ontology essential to political life, or a political strategy? Is it desirable, or even possible, to use it as a tool? Is it possible to separate the humorlessness that constitutes serious political commitment from self ratifying sovereign-style privilege and truth?
2: So I think she's on to something really important, and the bra- bravery of it, which is uh, also impressive, although kind of not flaunted, is that she's applying this to a situation of PC, of political correctness, when humorlessness is associated with self-righteousness. And I think she's trying to undercut the self-righteousness at the same time that she's very much on the side of the people who uh, are protesting, and as, as she presents it, have every reason to be protesting.
1: Okay. The thing we usually call humorlessness involves a refusal or incapacity to be receptive to change. As an affective state encountered internally or in the world, it is distinguished by the rejection or inaccessibility of a cushioning mobile affect. You might associate it with bodily gestures like crossed arms, a blank face, or shielded, shifting (coughs) eyes. You might associate it with being yelled at, or condescendingly talked down to softly. Often the experience of it involves a sharp, sharp contraction from within a scene of mutual relation. Sometimes it is just a mood sensed in persons or atmospheres, assessed at the time or later. In these zones, the relation of humorlessness to social performance is vastly complicated. The relation of its motive to its expression can take on many forms. So, for example, what appears to me to be the neutral to what appears to me to be neutral or thoughtful might to you appear to be my resting bitch face. Or my resting bitch face might appear to you as the performance of judgment in action, and therefore as legitimate dignity. These ambiguities exist for many reasons, none of which, or most of which, don't have anything to do with my face. For for one thing, different social worlds value varied norms of behavioral intensity and self-revelation in ordinary interaction, such that one context's aggressively withholding face might appear in another as a performance of good manners. One thing is for sure. Humorlessness is a property of privilege, as anyone familiar with the visual history of sovereignty's grim and ungrained portraiture will attest. In ordinary life, when we imagine engaging the man, that is, the police or bosses or anyone deriving attention and authority from their structural position in the public control of situations, the man's bearing is humorless toward the rigid. Even on occasions when the man, who could be of any gender, acts in the universe of warm, kind, or funny, we understand that the relief in the air is further evidence that we were not in control, that callousness remains as an available tool. This is to say something, then, of where one, some, where one expects socially to encounter the rigid negativity of the humorless, that is, in a seat of degradation. Its action can induce, confirm, or topple hierarchies that are propped up by how people interact. It can appear in the common, the arduous, the ordinary, and the forgettable situation. But, as a structure, the humorless is not often literalized in bodily demonstration at all. This is partly because we are often related to our affects, and it takes time to process them.
2: As I understand her, what Lauren Berlant is really interested in is humor, uh, under the heading of humorlessness is a situation in which we are not comfortable enough to be sure that something is funny and we're maybe not even comfortable enough to laugh.
1: In other words, performative humorlessness gestures toward what it cannot generate, the cushion and mobility of humor of an open sociality that can take delight in the awkwardness and complexity of staying in sync, staying attuned, and failing at both. But at the same time, it's not the opposite of the comic pleasure or a sting of laughter. Nor, as a liberal might suggest, should political humorlessness always be cured by humor.
0: Indeed, in an essay co-written with Xian Nye, a professor at Stanford University, Berlant asks what the opposite of comedy even is anymore.
1: After all, commitment, Adorno's synonym for the phrase, it could be otherwise, deserves protection and respect. If a political situation animates humorlessness, it's in part because the urge to transform the situation without losing the ground of commitment is ungainly and generates a lot of affective noise. Politics fights for change, but is also a bulwark against more of the wrong kinds of loss from some perspective. So. Humorlessness is involved in virtually all encounters, structurally without necessarily dominating them. Sometimes its capacity to control a situation is a political weapon and generates self-respect for something like dignity. Sometimes its experience is a singular misery. These positions are not mutually exclusive. Whenever it's discovered as the absence of a resource for relationality as such, Humorlessness signals a breakdown in sociality, for good or for ill. The fundamental point of this paper is that politically engaged beings are attached to their humorlessness, but also sometimes have to unlearn the form it takes, when the forms are the means by which violence and hierarchy are communicated as the very condition of sociality. Amid this shifting ground, the affective work of humorlessness goes on, threatening and protecting our political attachments. As an experience of the failure of optimism for relationality whose pleasure is on the surface, it is an abandonment to a state of miserable or triumphant autonomy. As a style for detaching from the defeating structures and events of the world that are also bound up in attachment, or as a style for holding on to something for dear life, humorlessness points to what love also points to, the pressure to unlearn the radical certainty for which our being also fights. How many feminists does
2: it take to change a light bulb? I mean, I laughed, and I laughed in a very uncomfortable way, which is just the thing that Lauren Berlant does, and creating the kind of charismatic effect that she creates.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. The Trilling Tapes is made possible by the Society of Fellows and the Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia University and the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Fellowship and Academic Administration at Columbia University. Many thanks to Eileen Giluli, Emily Bloom, Tess Chalafor draman Jocelyn Wilk, Sarah Jackman, Bruce Robbins, Michael Krauss, and Lauren Berlant. I'm Olivia
1: Ritigliano. Thanks again and talk to you soon.